Okay. Well, let's start looking at uh, at the uh, questions for today. Uh, <clears throat> And let's see, such a, a small group, I should make sure that, uh, that uh, if, if possible, uh, we deal with the questions of people that are here. So uh, do any of you have questions here that you put up? I posed a question. Oh, you did. Okay. Let me let me see if I can find it, and we'll start with this, and, and then if, and we'll just go to the head of the list here. This this is you, uh, I believe. Uh, you say you're practicing fairly stably at stages four, five. Is that? That's me. Yes. That's you. Okay, great. So as yet, though, <clears throat> I've not experienced the purification of the mind the welling up of significant material from the unconscious associated with stage four. Does this suggest some blockage somewhere? Uh, thank you for uh, teaching. Well, okay. Uh, since, since you are here and I can, uh, can ask you uh, some questions, uh, <clears throat> has, has your uh, life to date been so perfect, that there's no emotional trauma, no neurosis, uh, no, <laughs> no un, uh, unhealthy patterns of behavior. <laughs> Absolutely not. Of course, I can say yes, check off all those boxes. <laughs> okay. So in, in that case, I don't know if blockage would be the right word, but um, for some for some reason, uh, these things aren't coming up, and you're in stage four. So, uh, what happens in stage four because of the relative stability of attention and the expansion of your uh, introspective awareness, <clears throat> and the fact that uh, although there is some attention being given to subtle distractions, basically uh, uh, the communication channels from, uh, from the deeper sub-minds have, have an open pathway to consciousness. And there, so there are things, if there are things that are ready to be uh, brought to the surface and uh, examined and integrated, this is when the opportunity arises. <clears throat> now, uh, we can just look at the reasons why that may not be occurring. Um, and the first one that I would wonder about is um, um, have you had any... Uh, your your question or seems to say that you haven't really felt any emotional content arising. Yes. Have you had any other uh, unusual bodily sensations or anything like that? That's well. I I certainly felt uh, 
Mm -hmm. Peace. I felt a deepening, the energy that comes with some deepening of, uh, mm -hmm. of a, a stability of focus. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> that sounds, but doesn't really sound like it would be an indication of uh, some kind of uh, uh, um, emotional material or inner conflict or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, sounds pretty much like just a normal unification of mind. Um, this this does this does happen. Uh, it's it's not common, but it's not rare either. Uh, most likely. The purifications, uh, they'll, they will come up as you go ahead and, and proceed through the stages. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes you may find that as you're uh, going through your daily life and you are more aware of situations that trigger a reactive response, rather than uh, a more uh, uh, a reflection of conditioning rather than more of present moment processing of, of information and things like that. Um, when, when and if that happens, um, those are things that you can uh, look at more closely uh, when they happen and you become aware of them. And uh, you might, when you're meditating, just uh, hold the attitude that, that anything related to that, is you, uh, you're just inviting that, that to come up. And uh, that might trigger it. Otherwise, just uh, don't worry about it. And I'm sure it will come up sooner or later. That's good yeah in in most situations like uh, uh like this where it doesn't come up in stage four you'll, you'll get to stage five or six even before you get to stage seven when it then this tends tends to be the other major stage where these kinds of purifications happen but you might find things coming back coming up at stage five and stage six and when they do there'll be thoughts or emotions or images or something like that that arises strong distractions and you'll know because they are such strong distractions you'll find yourself back in a stage four like situation where you're trying to follow the meditation object whether it's breath scanning or a breath with the nose and there's these uh gross these things arise as gross distractions so just go ahead and treat them the way that's described in stage four i'll do that Thank you. And uh, check in on a future um, uh, one of these Q and A's, uh, and let us let us know if what has happened, and and if there's more that you'd like to ask about that. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so I, I'll go ahead to the top here. Uh, begin with the with those that came in a week ago, uh, Jorge Rojas uh, <clears throat> says, 
Sometimes when I start, I notice my mind just wander all over the place within the space of sensory input. I also might notice my eyes doing a lot of micro movements. Do I let my eyes do this, or do I gently focus my attention in front of me, eyes closed? It's almost as if attention wants to see the stimulus instead of leaving it there in the background. Um, I, I, I would say that uh, in, in, in fact, it is a, a tendency that uh, to some degree or another, uh, almost all of us are going to experience at some time where uh, the eyes do tend to try to follow the object of uh, attention. That usually doesn't last that long. Um, it's just something that, that that you may have a period where you notice this happening, uh, and it may later uh, just resolve itself into occasional instances. Now, this is usually uh, if there you're sitting there with your eyes closed and there's a sound, and you'll notice your eyes moving towards the sound, and uh, that's that's really a reflection of of your attention alternating with uh, with the sound. The other thing that some people experience is they're focusing on the breath at the nose and they'll realize that their eyes are trying, to, you know, if you try to look at the end of your nose, it becomes uncomfortable and they'll experience like a pressure or a tension uh, associated with their eyes or uh, some other part of the musculature associated. Sometimes the tension in the eyes can get referred to the forehead. So um, <clears throat> basically what I would say, Jorge, is just when you notice this happening, just uh, gently, yes, gently just relax and let your eyes return to uh, what would be the uh, kind of neutral position. Neutral position of the eyes is, is uh, 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 focus at a, what an ophthalmologist would call an intermediate distance, uh, sort of like, uh, I don't know if you can see where my, uh, relatively speaking, you can't, but maybe, uh, okay, so this would be kind of an intermediate distance, and uh, at, a, at a level that's probably more corresponding to your nose or mouth, and uh, this is the most comfortable, natural place anatomically and physiologically for your eyes to rest. You know, when the muscles that move the eyes are relaxed, then this is a position that the eyes will go, go to. So uh, all you need to do when you find that either your eyes are focusing on sensations at your nose or if they're following sensations around is just uh, relax your eyes and they'll tend to go to that position. Um, if it's something that's happening just occasionally, just notice it. Just be aware of it. Just be aware of the fact that uh, the more, the more uh, interest that some distraction holds uh, for, for the mind, the more likely it is that uh, not only will attention move towards it, but sometimes these eye moments movements will occur, and if they're not if they're not 
problematic, then just don't worry about them and they'll usually take care of themselves. Uh, next uh, question is from Daniel Kuperschek. <clears throat> My question has to do with an experience I had while meditating. As I sat suddenly, it seemed clear to me that there is all these individual processes in my mind that are constantly on without a, a me being the creator of them. After this became clear to me, my heart started to beat furiously. I had never experienced something like this, but it felt as if my heart was going to explode as it overtook all my attention and it filled every bit of awareness. This furious beating of my heart was so loud and intense but it felt as if my whole body was shaking with every beat of the heart. This lasted for about five minutes as it suddenly started becoming less and less when I finally, when finally it became normal again. That's a pretty powerful experience. After that experience, I'd say I hadn't noticed any huge difference in experience. I still see through my experience that my mind's activity hasn't changed nor has it made my everyday life that different. I'm puzzled as to why that happened if this experience didn't bring about a profound change. If you don't have an answer as to why this might have happened, I can understand, but thank you for taking the time. Okay. <clears throat> so, this is uh, an insight experience. In other words, you have an, an insight experience is an experience that is anomalous or inconsistent with the way that you uh, normally view and understand uh, uh, everything, you and the world and everything else. And... Um, we go through life having these insight experiences uh, and not really, you know, not really recognizing them for what they are. Uh, and uh, either, you know, uh, either being fascinated by them and not understanding them or dismissing them in one way or the other. Uh, as just a, a curiosity that happens. But in, in meditation, we become far more sensitive to these experiences. And so now, so as I sat, suddenly it seemed clear to me that there uh, are all these individual processes in my mind that are constantly on without a me being the creator of them. <clears throat> and probably many people, um, when they reflect on this, uh, recognize that um, they've had these experiences, um, that they've, the experience is just one of becoming aware of what is going on in your mind all of the time. But what's significant about that is that most of us go through uh, uh, life, our normal view of things, is that when something appears in our mind, that somehow that we're responsible for it. 
Well, if by we, we mean, you know, this, the, these five aggregates, uh, the mind and the sensory information coming into it, <clears throat> um, the process occurs, but the sense of a self that is uh, responsible for the contents of our mind, the activity of our mind, is an illusion that gets tacked on afterwards. It's, it's after the fact. Um, so what's being described here is an experience where that doesn't happen. And there's the recognition that, that if I am doing anything, I'm trying to, uh, to follow the instructions for the practice, but I become aware that there is so much going on in my mind that is certainly not intended by anything that I would call myself. And uh, so this produced a, a strong emotional reaction in, uh, uh, in Daniel. Too bad he's not here. <clears throat> now, the way that I interpret that is that, like I say, we're, we're having insight experiences before we ever begin to meditate. These anomalous occurrences, um, they get stored away somewhere uh, in, in the mind. The right hemisphere, uh, some of the functions of the right hemisphere uh, seem to be anomaly detectors, you know. And so uh, this manifests in awareness as something that arises and draws attention to it. Now, you've been collecting these anomalous experiences uh, sort of all your life. In meditation, one of these experiences like this can arise. And now it's, the experience is that of recognizing the activity that's going on in your mind that you have absolutely no control over, okay? And that uh, what makes it, uh, what gives it the potential to develop into true insight is that, um, that there's, your mind at an unconscious level has recognized this as a, a pattern. It's put together all of your collected past uh, uh, or, or some subset of your collected past experiences of things that don't quite fit your worldview that have to do with this one experience. And there arises then the recognition of this pattern that, you know, basically state it as I am not in control of my mind. And I may have known that before, but now it's become obvious as something that is much, the, the truth of this and the significance of this is being recognized by some part of your mind system, and it's disturbing. It's disturbing because, uh, because it can't be readily reconciled with uh, the assumptions that your worldview is based upon, and that gives it its impact. So this it would be a seed. This is the kind of thing that happens. Uh, now, 
what this can do when something like this happens is it can actually produce insight in the sense that some significant portion of your mind system is is now incorporating this um, this insight probably a part of of this experience that you might not have been conscious of was would be an extrapolation that that since there is so much going on in my mind that I have no control over am I is there really an agent uh, is there really an I that is is uh, uh, thinking these thoughts and experiencing these reactions and that is what's disturbing and causes the emotional part of the mind to produce an emotional reaction. Uh, in this case, it manifested as a very rapid heartbeat, um, suggesting that, that perhaps there's an element of fear in this experience. But the, the one significant thing that Daniel says here is that after that experience, I'd say I hadn't noticed any huge difference. And I still see through my experience that my mind's activity hasn't changed, nor has it made my everyday life uh, different. I'm puzzled as to why that happened if this experience didn't bring about a profound change. Well, uh, what's happening is that the parts of your mind system that uh, recognize this, the implications of this, aren't what is dominating in your everyday experience. We would say you have had an insight if afterwards you can continue to see things and you can continue to have this experience and even feel it uh, extrapolate into, uh, is, am, am I really the uh, author of, of my, my thoughts right now? Am I really the uh, agent behind my words and my actions in the present moment, then that, that is an insight that uh, is beginning to develop. Uh, and as you go along and as, as it triggers other insights to arise and begin to begin this maturation process of the mind, then you're, this becomes um, a more uh, consistent shift in your perception and you're well on the way to an awakening experience, which will require that all of the insights develop and mature to a certain level. So what you've had is, uh, is uh, a, you've, you've had, you describe it correctly, you've had an insight experience uh, one that rather than being just disregarded or dismissed by the mind has been has been has triggered the recognition of a, a truth about something uh, that uh, it, it it has trouble uh, reconciling but it's it's still very immature. It's still very limited in terms of how much of your mind has uh, has uh, 
touched into this or sees any significance or value in it. But it's a very positive sign. And these are the kinds of things that uh, do eventually give rise to an experience that does produce an ongoing shift in perception. So since Daniel's not here, if there's anybody else that, that, that gives rise to a question that you'd like to ask or a comment you'd like to make, please go right ahead. It seems not to be the case. Okay, well, that's fine. Then let's, uh, let's move on to the next question here. Dennis Smith. Dennis says, I'm curious if you would talk a bit about the similarities and differences between the views and approach of TMI with that of Arayta Vedanta, as well as inquiry methods of meditation. <clears throat> well, I personally see, uh, you know, I, I have done a bit of exploration of Advaita Vedanta. As a matter of fact, uh, my first exposure to uh, Eastern uh, philosophies and wisdom traditions was through the uh, Vivekananda Vedanta Society. And so in, in, in Chicago and some texts that I bought from them, that was back when I was, oh, maybe 20, 20 22, something like that. And so um, I, after I discovered Buddhism, um, and uh, tended to uh, to keep looking back at the Vedanta and, of course, particularly the Advaita Vedanta, the non-dualism, that uh, I recognized that it is probably the most similar in its uh, conceptual construction of the process of awakening to Buddhism uh, of uh, any of the other, uh, certainly any of the other uh, metaphysical, uh, spiritual, uh, whatever you want to call it, religious uh, uh, systems, in, uh, certainly in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, what is confusing to people uh, when drawing the similarities between Buddhism and Advaita is that uh, there is in, in the training of Advaita, there is the search for the true self. And um, in a way, this is not particularly different than uh, if you choose to translate anatta in the Buddha's teaching as not-self, rather than as no self, uh, the practice of searching for the self and what you find is that everything, that everything, everywhere you look, anything that you might uh, expect to be able to identify as self uh, turns out not to be. So when everything is not self, there, there is no self. In the search for the true self, uh, in Advaita, it's, there is a point of recognition of self in a way that uh, uh, 
typically identifies with consciousness. But in Advaita, this uh, continues on till ultimately um, uh, the the true self is um, what we might refer to in Buddhism as the ongoing uh, awareness of suchness, as dwelling in the awareness of suchness. And that's where the, the individual self has, uh, the, it, it is no longer identified uh, as self in the same way. So they're very similar. But Dennis' question in particular is uh, similarities and differences between the views and approach. So, as I say, the views are not that dissimilar except for the language that's being used. And uh, so there can be a, apparently a, a difference in view regarding the self and its reality. With regard to approach, there's a very big difference. One of the things that I always thought, uh, you know, I, I love reading the Zargadatta, uh, um, I, and um, oh, uh, Ramesh Balsakar, uh, I really enjoy that. But the problem with that and the problem with the non-dual teachings that you will hear, uh, you know, online modern teachers in the West, is that they, the instruction they give is very, very limited. And TMI is, is structured, it's based on the way the the way the human mind can be trained to see and understand things, and it's of course it's also based on the uh, the Dharma uh, model or construct uh, that that the Buddha produced. Especially if we leave aside all the stuff that got added on later, um, there is one similarity in that methodology, and that's in the practice of uh, finding the still point and experiencing the witness, uh, the inquiry that there is the same inquiry uh, technique that's used in association with that. So I would, I would view TMI and actually Buddhism and Buddhist meditation methods in general uh, as being more systematic and providing more uh, useful guidance to seekers than Advaita. Um, you know, the idea that, well, you're already awake, you just need to realize it. Uh, you just, you know, uh, uh, doing self-inquiry is a powerful technique. But if that's the only technique in your repertoire, if you haven't developed uh, the various mental capacities that allow you to penetrate uh, that and, and see things from the perspective of, of insight, uh, then, uh, yeah, that's, what I, that, that's the biggest difference between TMI and Advaita. Uh, and TMI does make use of the uh, uh, inquiry process. Uh, uh, in, a, in a part of the practices of an adept, which are all insight practices. And that's a particularly powerful one. So once again, if anyone would like to comment, since Dennis is not here, feel free.
right. Uh, <clears throat> Um, okay, Jonic Manifold, interesting name. Uh, the next question. I have a question about the possibility of applying deep absorption states to scientific research. In an appendix of the book, you outline a practice of analytic meditation useful for general problem solving. I'm very curious about what would happen if one entered jhana using as object of attention a question, problem, or scientific concept. Uh, do you think this could be useful in ways that the simple analytic meditation cannot be? <clears throat> Would one understand calculus better if one spent four hours in jhana with the concept of a derivative as the object of attention? Perhaps the amount of subconscious work done on a given problem is related to the number of moments of attention dedicated to it. So maybe using jhanic levels of absorption on a problem would really boost the subconscious work done during daily life. Well, what I'd like to do is to uh, go back to the, uh, the appendix on the practice of analytical meditation and a lot of this is just it is uh, it's 100% consistent in its uh, description with um, what uh, the research that's been done in cognitive science on how we solve problems and different kinds of problem solving uh, and this particular technique, if you, if you read through it, uh, what we're doing <clears throat> is uh, trying to optimally use attention and awareness for um, the kind of uh, creative perceptual process that can both provide unusual solutions or unexpected solutions to problems, uh, you know, the thinking outside the box kind of solutions. Um, and um, uh, and a more profound insight into uh, some topic uh, that you intend to complete, uh, that you would like to know more about. So this question of, uh, you know, uh, looking, you know, would, I think that uh, you would probably find that if you practiced analytical meditation the way it's described, that you would probably, uh, uh, and, and with the idea that you wanted to understand uh, the, you want to understand, understand the idea of derivatives in calculus better, that by, by doing this, you would probably come up with a much deeper understanding and uh, one which would allow you to uh, uh, learn calculus and to apply it more effectively. Uh, but what's doing that is the 
multiple or, or parallel processing that is taking place in uh, the unconscious mind and primarily in those parts of the unconscious mind that are that are not functioning in the reductionistic analytical mode as a matter of fact we we uh, are familiar with uh, uh, Newton's uh, you know the uh, the the idea that the falling of an apple from a tree triggered in Newton the realization of the uh, of the law of gravity. Uh, uh, it, it triggered the work that that produced uh, the the foundations of his understanding of physics. But I think we could probably look at the invention of calculus in exactly the same way. That this was <clears throat> this was a very innovative very creative solution to a problem. And it didn't arise as a result of linear uh, analytical thinking that is characteristic of attention. Rather, what the role of attention in this, the inspiration comes uh, from, as a result of all of this parallel processing uh, that is, is not reductionistic and analytic in its in its fundamental mode it's looking for it's looking for patterns and connections and uh, it's it tends to be very uh, creative and what it will do is it'll toss these potential solutions into into consciousness and when it does attention then can test it it can analyze it and make sense of it uh, or well not necessarily make sense of it because that particular part of your mind uh, really isn't going to be the source you, you, what happens with most students of calculus is they use to learn uh, they, they, they learn to use these concepts but uh, and they see that they work but they don't have a particularly deep understanding of them uh, and most people most of these people are just trying to pass calculus because it's required as a part of the curriculum and perhaps they're going to go into some branch of, of uh, physics or something like that where they're going to need to use this uh, as a tool over time their understanding of it may deepen and become more sophisticated if they use it but the majority of people are learning calculus never get beyond the place of uh, using these concepts to solve the problems on the exam. And then once the course is over, they say, thank goodness, I don't ever have to do that again. But um, I, I can see the origins of calculus. Now, you put this in the context of jhanas. And um, whether or not holding an idea like that prior to entering the jhanas uh, would produce a similar effect, I don't know. I haven't. Uh, I haven't tried that. Um, if it did, the reason it would <clears throat> is not the attention you're applying to it, but it's because yes, if you took this as the object of your attention and you entered uh, the the flow state that is jhana, you entered into the first jhana with this, uh, you 
your attention would penetrate this idea deeply, but then as you move through the higher jhanas, attention itself is not what is really going to be continuing to work with these things at an unconscious level. Um, but it might trigger, set in motion <clears throat> those parts of your mind that uh, uh, you're not conscious of what kind of processing is taking place. They may continue to work on the problem, and I could see where, where this could, where taking an idea like this and instead of just uh, uh, sort of ruminating on it like you do in the first stage of the analytical meditation, that you actually uh, go ahead and shift into second, third, or even fourth jhana. So it's an interesting idea. But what I'm, what I'm trying to clarify here is that it is not attention. Attention is linear. And that linearity is, the linearity of that is a useful tool for detecting flaws in potential solutions and for validating uh, uh, potential solutions or recognitions, understandings. I mean, the analytical meditation is used as much for understanding something more deeply as it is for problem solving. Uh, the two are not that different. So the deeper understanding that you would get of something uh, as a result of either analytical meditation or if this worked well as an application of jhana, it's an interesting idea and I'd like to see somebody try it, see how well it works. But the valuable work that's being done is by those parts of the mind that are uh, uh, not not functioning in an analytical and reductive way uh, and uh, they're functioning more in the mode of pattern recognition and anomaly detection and uh, synthesis. Uh, uh, yeah. And that there are many, many uh, subsystems in the mind that are doing this in parallel with each other. And, and because that they are not, uh, because they're not part of the processing system that gives rise to attention, uh, they, there's a lot more latitude in what they will seize upon and uh, the, uh, the processing that will result in that. So a lot of the, it, it comes up with a lot of faults interpretations, but it can, because of this kind of innovative uh, uh, and outside-the-box, uh, non-linear non approach to, uh, and more holistic approach to, to examining something, come up with a solution that goes beyond what would likely to ever be achieved with the kind of linear thinking that's associated with attention. So where attention comes in is validating this afterwards. And in the analytical meditation, that is 
that is a part of the process. It arises uh, in consciousness. Uh, it is examined by attention. And uh, if there are flaws in it, these, these become part of the conscious process. And the message basically goes back to the parallel processing part of the mind that, that um, no, this doesn't work, try again. So that's my thoughts on the general area of this, is that, uh, that analytical meditation, which really the first, the, the uh, earliest instances of that are uh, in, uh, in Catholicism, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, what's a Lectio Divina, right? The Lectio Divina is based on this, and uh, the implicit recognition that there are different parts of your mind that can lead to deeper understanding of a bit of scripture or a bit of doctrine or of experience or something like that is it's quite amazing and how consistent it is this seems to have been rediscovered i think uh, uh not rediscovered but also discovered in northern india and the people who seem to have made the most use of it uh were uh were in the tibetan tradition where um Unfortunately, analytic meditation in the Tibetan tradition has turned into a way to uh, reinforce uh, doctrinal dogma rather than to truly investigate things. But uh, nevertheless, you can see within it the same uh, patterns that it stand out so clearly with Lectio Divina. And uh, it is, it's invoking that part of your mind that is least constrained by uh, uh, as many assumptions uh, and therefore is capable of coming up with much more creative interpretations and ultimately more accurate interpretations than strict linear processing. So I, I hope that's a meaningful answer. Anybody want to comment? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, I guess my thinking was more like the that the amount of parallel processing would be influenced by the number by the intensity of attention on the particular concept. So, kind of having scattered attention wouldn't produce much of parallel processing, yeah. whereas having extremely focused attention would make almost all of your subminds work on a particular problem. Right. Actually, that that is very accurate. That. Holding it in attention, uh, and I see why why you draw the parallel with. Uh, I, I I I saw that uh, in in your question, drawing the parallel with jhana. But yes, if you focus your attention on it, then what that does is it. How would how would you describe it? Causes the rest of the mind system to get interested in the problem. And sets the, would set them to work on uh, on trying to find some resolution, or perhaps looking at, at some bit of teaching 
and uh, finding an interpretation, something that's hard to understand, and finding a way of uh, uh, interpreting it that uh, is uh, is easier to comprehend. Thank you. So, yeah. So what you suggest is a very interesting um, um, application of jhana. That, you know, we use jhana for solving. Uh, uh, problem. I had to get in touch with some uh, uh, theoretical physicists and let them have a go at it. Teach them to enter jhana, or better yet, find some physicists. Actually, in the teacher training classes, we have several physicists. I, 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 if they're actively working on some kind of problem, ask them uh, how that relates to to how they usually solve it. Uh, there's another good example of exactly the same thing is that, uh, um, you know, Stephen Hawking um, realized that, um, that black holes evaporate. Uh, if you're interested in that, it's a, something to look at. But anyway, this, this was profoundly different than what anybody else had even considered as a possibility in physics at the time. But he had this intuitive realization, and then afterwards he worked through the 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 theory and the mathematics of it, and it's now established and recognized as a fact that yes, it's inevitable that a black hole will evaporate, even though the definition of a black hole is something from which nothing can escape the event horizon. So. This happened to him while he was relaxing one evening and looking at the fire, looking, looking at the, the fire in a fireplace. And uh, so it probably he had been contemplating things about black holes with attention and analysis previously. He relaxes the mind and lets, these, lets the information from the rest of the mind begin to make its way to the surface, and it comes to the surface in this sudden insight, which had to be subsequently validated. So, yeah. So, jhana may be, uh, this would be another interesting way, you know, uh, uh, all the MBSR and MB this, that, that is going on is used as therapy for uh, helping people deal with stress and PTSD and things like that. And when, when people like John Kabat-Zinn are, are challenged that, that this is uh, kind of missing the whole point of the, of, of the Dharma, leaving the Dharma out of it and so on and so forth, he always responds is that this is a tremendous entryway uh, into other aspects of meditation, other forms of meditation, and uh, into the Dharma. And so now this would be interesting here if jhana could be used for scientific problem solving. And, uh, you know, in the same way people are teaching mindfulness to every, uh, to in corporations and in all kinds of other situations, even in the military, everything like that, we find people start training in jhana practice in order to become uh, more uh, uh, better scientists. 
better problem solving. I like this. I like the implied suggestion in there. So, can I ask kind of follow up on that? Sure. Um, I'm wondering whether you're in in your reflections on this, whether you're admitting uh, the possibility of some discursive activity in the jhana itself, or whether it's just setting an attention to further understand something that is the object for entering the jhana. Mm -hmm. And then when you come out of the jhana, suddenly you have insight, or is there some kind of discursive processing going on consciously within the Mm -hmm. jhana itself? And if so, that connect with the concept of flow and loss yeah. of energy and that sort of thing. Um, you could, you can enter into a flow state that is somewhat jhana-like, where there is, uh, where the principal activity of the mind is discursive. Uh, but that's not really the kind of flow state that uh, that what is usually referred to as jhana. Is, is involved in the the flow state that um, programmers enter into would be a, a really good example of that in the jhana there is no discursive thinking uh, but what would happen is this work would be being done in the uh, unconscious mind uh, one of the things that jhana does is it excludes from consciousness a lot of mental processing that's taking place. Uh, and when that breaks through, which it sometimes can in, in the early, you know, in the lighter jhanas and in earlier stages of, of practice of jhana, when it breaks through, it disrupts the jhana. And so the essence of jhana or the flow state is kind of an exclusion of these other things. Well, these things that have been excluded can be keep, can continue to work on the problem. And then when the jhana, you come out of the jhana, uh, then uh, that's when these realizations might come to the surface. Thank you. Oh, let's, uh, let's see what's next here. A question from a question from uh, Bart Tiska, who is not here. I, I and yeah, and posted by Ted. Okay, I've read how at later stages one's memory can be affected. And I've read that people have lost their jobs or rely on work colleagues to make up for shortcomings in their short-term memory due to meditation. Is this likely? And if so, is there anything one can do to stop the memory from weakening for those who support their families with their job? Um, this is uh, this is a very interesting topic that. Uh, there's been a fair bit of discussion taking place. One thing that is pretty widely agreed, and it's certainly my experience, is that uh, what we call auto, auto, or what we call biographical memory, becomes uh, lose a lot of that. You know, I've, yeah, biographical memory is is the most 
universal and significantly recognized uh, change that takes place in memory as a result of uh, uh, insight and higher stages of awakening. Now, there is, excuse me a moment, there's something that I am experiencing and has become a topic of discussion, uh, which is uh, my short-term memory and my ability re to recollect names uh, and sometimes even words is diminished. But I'm also, I'm also 73 years old, and this is considered an, a normal part of aging. So how do you distinguish whether or not um, meditation has significantly, the meditation itself uh, has made any kind of significant difference uh, and distinguish that from aging? Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I, um, my father developed uh, dementia and the first signs of it showed up, uh, started showing up when he was about the age I am. He lived to be, he lived to be 93, and uh, it, over the that's would that's 20 years older than I am now, and I could see that um, uh, that some of the things that I'm experiencing were the same things I saw in my father when he was in his 70s. So. It's, there are a lot of confounding variables in this, but it is something that is definitely worthwhile uh, uh, understanding and being uh, uh, and being cognizant of uh, as one chooses to uh, pursue this path. Is is this in fact uh, is this kind of a a cost associated with the uh, with the achievement of the higher path. Um, how good was the Buddha's short-term memory? It's really hard to say. Uh, you can't tell from the suttas. And of course, he had Ananda and a number of other attendants who would have uh, probably uh, been quick to help him out in, in problems of, that had to do with memory. Uh, so basically, I don't know the answer to this. I know a lot of people are talking about it. I know the evidence is all anecdotal, and I know that there are a variety of confounding factors. So uh, it's an interesting topic. All I can tell you is my own experience is what I noticed and what was significant was the loss of autobiographical memory. And that makes sense, okay? with basically living in a state where um, the concept of my individual self is not really very important. It's, a, it's, it's functionally important, but it's, it's not of any major significance. And um, as a matter of, for, for, matter of fact, for years, I almost never said anything about myself, and people commented on this. Uh, 
And people also encouraged me, you know, if you, if you told some of your personal experiences in, uh, in your teaching, it would be very helpful to other people. And now I, I do that. And I find I can draw upon autobiographical memory uh, in order to help me with that. So it's not like it's gone, but it seems like it's lost a huge part of its, its relevance uh, in the sense that there's large parts of my life that I'll never even think about unless somebody comes along and brings them up or I happen to go through a photo album, you know, and I'll have totally forgotten that I ever visited that particular place or dealt with those people or that those events happened. It just wasn't there until something triggered it. The other part of my experience is, yes, I'm, I'm experiencing diminished uh, short-term memory and diminished memory for, for names and sometimes words. But this is also normal for aging, and that, that could be true of others as well. And uh, how do you tell the difference? Not only is it normal with aging in pretty well everyone, but any one of us who may have a predisposition to dementia, it's obviously going to become a more evident problem sooner. So that's about all I can say about it. Would be good to know, though. Would definitely be good to know. I don't think, you know, one of the, if I go back to, to the questions here, <clears throat> to this particular question, um, it says, I've read that people have lost their jobs or rely on work colleagues to make up for shortcomings in their short-term memory due to meditation. Um, yeah, this would be this would be the kind of uh, anecdotal thing that gets uh, exploded into a thesis, and doesn't really all it is is suggestive of something that could be looked at. Personally, I think that somebody who, is, uh, who had achieved to the higher pass, had attained higher pass, and was still working, would probably not be hampered by any effect like that. Um, I, I certainly know that, um, that I wasn't, and it's a more recent development with, with me. So I would question I would question those those stories, right? Uh, just I mean it's it's, it's a <clears throat> it's an aside, but uh, it's just another illustration of something that is happening. People are looking at uh, people are looking at the process of awakening, and there is more of an awareness of you know are are there any. Uh, uh, adverse uh, effects associated with these profound changes we make in the way we think and the way our, our brains work, the way our minds work. Uh, and it even goes beyond that. <clears throat> Somebody has uh, written uh, some uh, articles. There have been some articles written by several somebodies, I should say, that basically are implying and they make reference to uh, Adyashanti and a few other people, that it seems like when somebody becomes 
uh, more fully awakened, they develop health problems. And of course, people have brought that to my attention because I've had a lot of health problems, right? But is is this is this really valid? Is there any validity in this? Uh, I mean, all kinds of people have health problems, and um, I think more than anything else, that that particular attempt to take anecdotal information and uh, produce a hypothesis out of it, <clears throat> its real significance, I think, is not so much does awakening make you more prone to health problems, but uh, certainly does it answer, it, it points to an answer to a different question. Can awakening somehow allow you to overcome problems, the ordinary problems of sickness and aging and, and death? I mean, should we legitimately expect anybody who is more fully awakened to live longer and stay healthier uh, longer? And I think this points to the fact that no, <laughs> it doesn't do that. Um, so, it's just, uh, just another example of something similar. These are interesting and relevant questions, um, but as you can imagine, the kind of it's very difficult to do the kind of uh, work that would be necessary to see if there's uh, uh, some statistically significant uh, correlations that uh, that would point to some to a causal relationship uh, rather than just you know a, a correlation, but uh, due to independent causes. Uh, William, William Wallen, Bill, Dr. Bill, didn't, wasn't able to make it today, it looks like. Uh, too bad. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> your question, what role do you see for peripheral awareness and metacognitive awareness in helping translate the lessons learned on the cushion to everyday life? Whenever I work to focus very closely on multiple sensations of breathing, my breathing becomes a sort of stilted and it seems like this is a second question. Um, let me make sure. I've been working to become relaxed and let the breathing go on its own, but without success. When I relax with the examination, there's a greater tendency for dullness and distraction to sneak in. Uh, <clears throat> well, I'd like, like to go back. Uh, this is, does seem to be two distinct and unrelated questions here, so let's deal with the first one. What role do you see for peripheral awareness and metacognitive awareness in helping translate the lessons learned on the cushion to everyday life? Um, it actually it is, is extreme, it has an extremely important role. It works both ways. Um, as you increase uh, as you increase uh, awareness, what you're increasing is mindfulness. So as you become increasingly mindful in your daily life, then uh, yes, the things that you the things that you have learned both on the cushion and um, and off the cushion through reflection, through uh, maybe studying uh, uh, the the Dharma itself. 
the more mindfulness you have in daily life, uh, the more your understanding of these things is going to play a, a very significant role. Now, if you were to look at the uh, appendix on the mindful review, that is basically training a person to utilize not just mindfulness, but mindfulness with clear comprehension, the uh, sati sampajana uh, in, in your daily life. By doing so, you recognize when um, something that is arising as an intention that might lead to speech and action and that is manifesting a certain thoughts and emotions, you can recognize the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of it. And you have then the choice to uh, take something that is unwholesome uh, and to uh, replace it with a wholesome perspective. And whenever you do that, uh, and whenever you, I mean, it, it starts with, with just having an unwholesome intention, thoughts, and, and emotions arise, and declining to act or speak on the basis of them. What that is doing is it is reducing the, uh, the power that craving has over you and the tendency that with, uh, uh, for self-clinging to dominate your intentional activities in life. Now, when you come to the point where, you know, you have the, uh, the clear comprehension aspect of sati, the sati sampajana, you're going to be seeing these arising uh, and understanding them more directly uh, and more immediately. And so it, this is the point at which you are really doing some profoundly powerful work in terms of changing the way your mind works. The, this is where you have the opportunity to replace an unwholesome thought uh, and an intention with a wholesome one by drawing upon the new perspective that you have gained through the combination of Dharma study and uh, meditation. And this is really powerful. This is, uh, and the, the Buddha describes this process of uh, uh, thought replacement or thought substitution. I mean, this is a, this is a legitimate Buddhist practice. And uh, uh, the Buddha recounts how he could categorize the things that arose in his mind as either wholesome or unwholesome in the sense that the wholesome brought the mind nearer to awakening, nearer to nirvana, and the unwholesome was something that took the mind further from this. And that this, uh, that um, acting uh, on unwholesome intentions uh, makes it more likely that you'll do so in the future. And this was a, this is the process of the creation of habitual karmas. And he said intention is karma. So, you know, what, what you're really doing is working at the level of karma when you have the 
degree of metacognitive introspective awareness that allows you to recognize uh, unwholesome intentions when they arise, the thoughts that have uh, that uh, have been driving them, the associated emotions. So the uh, thought, emotion, intention complex that lies behind our speech and action, now you can work with that very directly. And uh, it's a very powerful way of overcoming craving and uh, self-clinging uh, and uh, moving yourself towards awakening. So the second part of your question here, well, anybody want to comment on the first part? No. Okay. So this is, <clears throat> let's make a final comment on this. Um, the Buddha's redefinition of karma as intention and the way that that changes who you are in terms of whether or not you're moving in the direction of becoming a more enlightened being or a less enlightened being is really, really significant. It's, it's a hugely significant part of what underlies the whole training. Uh, oh, and I forgot to mention, I said it cuts two ways. If you do this in your daily life, then it's going to make uh, your experiences in meditation more powerful. It's also going to provide the raw material in huge abundance for, uh, for insight experiences to occur. Anybody want to comment on that? Okay, well, let's move on then to the second part of uh, Dr. Wallen's question here. <clears throat> Focus very closely on multiple sensations. Breathing becomes stilted and rigid. Uh, working, when I relax the examination, there's a greater tendency for dullness and distraction to sneak in. Uh, I think what you want to do here is to work on allowing just allowing those changes to occur, the more that you attend to them, um, well, first of all, don't do what I call, as I refer to as selfing. You know, it seems like you've recognized that these things are happening on their own in response to your intention to examine breath sensations more closely. So make a clear distinction between what your intention is and how unconscious mental processes may affect your breathing uh, in an attempt to make that occur more readily. Just recognize them for what they are. Let them be there and work on letting them be there. The more concerned you are about them, the less likely they are to just pass away by themselves. If you, if you just are aware that, okay, my breathing is, is changing, and uh, yeah, indeed it does exaggerate certain sensations, but it does so at the expense of, uh, of replacing the natural breath with an artificial, uh, artificial well, it's not artificial, in the, in the sense that it, it comes from any deliberate intention, but with a, <clears throat> with a reaction that uh, also is going to eliminate the ability to just 
focus on the way things arise and pass away in consciousness. Ultimately, it doesn't matter that this happens. It doesn't matter if this continues to happen. Because what you're really interested in when you're following the sensations of the breath more closely is what the mind is doing and what is arising in consciousness as a result of this and what it potentially leads to. So uh, what I would say basically, Bill, is just practice allowing it to be there, letting it come, let it be, let it go. Don't feel any need to do anything about it. The kind of backing away that you're talking about, the relaxation of attention, uh, what you're there's there's more than one way that you can relax attention. One is just to kind of step back and and take a less highly focused approach. But the other way is just to uh, increase the amount of dullness. So recognizing that that what you're doing in terms of your relaxation of of attention is triggering dullness. That's important information. That's, uh, that's, that's revealing information. That's telling you something about what your mind is doing and knowing that there is an alternative way to just uh, not relax the attention uh, but, uh, not, and not back away from it, but rather just learn to let it be there in awareness without attention uh, being drawn to the phenomenon, being concerned about the phenomenon, and basically turn, uh, generating a state of non-acceptance where you want this alteration in the breath to just simply go away. So that's what's important there. Hope that's helpful. Sean Delizio. <clears throat> Recently, I attended a traditional Guenka-style Vipassana retreat. What do you see as being the key differences and results between that practice and the body scanning technique that you use, that you describe in stage five? <clears throat> and, uh, well, the, the purposes that we're using the body scan for are, uh, are quite different. Um, there are similar things that, that occur as a result of it, not surprisingly. But, but the intention uh, behind the body scanning is quite different in the Goenka style uh, practice because it is, it's really intended to, uh, first of all, to trigger certain kinds of... Uh, uh, what we would call in TMI purifications to occur. This is brings to your conscious awareness things that need to be uh, integrated integrated into uh, the rest of the mind system because they're problematic. And the second intention behind that, which is really an extension of the first, is to give rise to insight. Uh, 
which is why it's which is what makes it a vipassana practice not because it's you're doing something different but because the intention behind it is is different so you know in stage five we're using this just to uh, we're exercising the mind uh, we're trying to work towards uh, uh, a more uh, powerful state of consciousness that will manifest in the quality of both attention and awareness and the ability to maintain a very high level of awareness even while you are uh, quite intensely focused on the objects of attention and vice versa. So, so the intentions, the, uh, the purpose, uh, it's a means to a particular end. And in stages five and six, the body scan is um, serving a different purpose. There is overlap, though, and so some of the some of the effects that are actually the intention of the Goenka retreat are going to or Goenka body scanning are going to arise in some people uh, when doing the body scanning in stage five and stage six. But that's basically it. It's the similar similar techniques but used for different purposes uh, but because of the similarity there's going to be some of the same things happen in both cases uh, the Goenka practitioner is going to uh, uh, going to increase both the, the power of attention and awareness as a result of it <clears throat> next question is from Kevin Hing Kevin says, as my practice progresses and my awareness strengthens, I find I'm becoming better at recognizing the arising of craving and aversion off the cushion and becoming better at modifying my behavior accordingly, i.e. I'm getting better at course correcting in real time towards more wholesome directions. Hey, that's just what we were talking about, isn't it? Okay, however, while my outward behavior is improving gradually, when craving or aversion have arisen, I'm still experiencing the negative sensations, feelings, emotions associated with these delusions, and often the awareness of the delusions causes additional aversion to uh, arise. Um, <clears throat> can you please share your preferred off-the-cushion practice techniques to work with the feelings associated with strong craving and aversion? once awareness has brought them to the practitioner's attention. Yes, uh, this is, <laughs> by, the answer is yes, be very aware, be very mindful. What causes, what causes shifts in the way the mind system tends to react uh, to, certain trigger circumstances rather than respond from a more from a wiser uh, uh, place is the recognition that to the degree that you are experiencing craving you are suffering and to the degree that you act out of craving you are far more likely to suffer as a result of that 
um, you begin to notice that when you react out of irritation or anger, for example, that <clears throat> it can spoil the rest of your afternoon or and or uh, it can spoil somebody else's day as well. You know, that there are negative consequences to this. This is information that by being mindful of it, by being conscious of it, by paying attention to it, by both being aware of it and paying attention to it, you are communicating to the parts of your mind that are responsible for giving rise to those uh, delusional, craving-based uh, desires and intentions <clears throat> that that information is going, that's a kind of information that those parts of your mind haven't been getting in the past. They trigger you to, to think, feel, intend, speak, act in a particular way. Subsequently, you regret it, you try to put it out of your mind, uh, you make excuses for it, whatever it is, but the part of your mind that caused that to happen, it was triggered, turned on, took control, made you behave in a particular way, and then it went back to sleep, went back into a dormant state. And you dealt, you didn't, the consequences of, of your uh, behavior or even your thoughts uh, on you and on others never gets communicated to the part of the mind that is responsible for it unless you hold it in mindfulness and unless you pay attention to it because this way both uh, uh, both attention and awareness are communicating valuable information to the part of your mind who is, that that otherwise just remains oblivious to the uh, consequences of its actions and it keeps on producing the same result over and over again so extremely important yes um, preferred off the cushion practice is that uh, mindful review and the purpose of the review is to lead to to real-time high-level mindfulness in in your daily life David I've already answered your question <clears throat> got oh I've got a number of interesting questions left here um, so I guess we have to schedule a follow-up uh, for this. And um, to deal with the rest of these questions. And I ask something of those that are, were here today. Um, the, what is the role of um, the timing of these sessions, the days of the week, and the times of day, I know people live in many different time zones, on the likelihood that you are, you know, you're here today, and uh, you might not have been present at some past sessions. How much did that have to do with the day of the week and the time of the day that, uh, that we schedule these at? Uh, I live on the East Coast, so I'm two hours ahead of you. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, uh, anything later than 6 p.m. your time would tend mm -hmm. to be a problem for me. 
Yeah. So it does play a role. And the timing yeah. today made it easier for you to attend. Yes, daytime yeah. is easier for me. But it's uh, for somebody else, it could have just the opposite effect. Exactly. Somebody, <laughs> if somebody's working and they live on the West Coast, then we've scheduled this for, uh, well, it, it might hit their lunch hour, which would be, which possibly would give them a chance to attend. But yeah, okay. Is it is it a major factor for any of the rest of you? Just a yes or no. No particular major factor for me. My timing is fairly flexible. Oh, okay. And so that would explain why you would be able able to attend today, and perhaps yes. others wouldn't. Yes, I suspected that. And it, because people are in different time zones, and some people have more free time than others, uh, and different priorities. Uh, yeah, it's a complicating factor. Anyway, I, I enjoy these sessions, and uh, when I see how many questions I received, and that only, and only two people of the questions that I actually succeeded in dealing with were present today, um, you know, I, I it makes me feel a bit sad. I you know, I, I'd much rather be able to speak to those people directly and maybe ask them and ask them questions and get their responses. So thank you for the feedback. Uh, I'm not sure what we'll do with it, but we'll at least have it in mind when we schedule the follow-up session for this one. Okay. Well, thank you for taking the time to be here today. And I hope the questions that we did answer, uh, uh, that the answers held some value for you. And uh, yes. They did. Thank you. Thank you. Best wishes to you all. Same to you. And to you.